On September 14, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Stein Ringen, Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at Green Templeton College, University of Oxford, whose book is titled The Perfect Dictatorship, China in the 21st Century. The seminar was moderated by Tony Sage, Ash Center Director and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was co-sponsored by the Harvard University Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. For more information about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much uh, for coming this afternoon. Uh, we're very lucky to have returning to us uh, Professor Stein Ringen, who spent some time with us a while ago, uh, mainly when he was working on a different project, but also starting or was in the midst of his thinking about where study of the Chinese welfare state was going to take him. And I must say it finished up in quite a different place from where I thought it might at that particular time. As you probably know, Stein uh, is uh, Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Social Policy from the University uh, of Oxford. The book itself is a very challenging uh, thesis, uh, as you can see from the title. If you're going to be perfect in anything, you might as well be perfect as a dictatorship. <laughs> but it's an interesting set of arguments that, in, and again, I think, it has the big advantage of a non-China specialist coming to look at China. And those of us who work pretty much exclusively on China tend to get very protective with the idea you can only understand China if you understand China and several thousand years of history, and of course that is nonsense. And I think what Stein and others show is that while, the, yes, there are Chinese peculiarities, there are many similarities to things that we've seen elsewhere in the world. And the interest came, and I think this is the interesting contrast in the book, through the study of welfare systems and the welfare state. And whereas his earlier work with some of his PhD students led to the conclusion that the construction of welfare policy in the welfare state moved South Korea from a situation of... Uh, poverty and oppression to one of relative affluence and one of uh, democracy. Whereas his conclusions about China at the current stage are not quite so positive that that is the trend in which it's, uh, it's heading. But it picks up, I think, on a theme which is in the work of a number of people looking at China, I'm thinking of uh, Jim Mann, for example, who talks about what he calls the Starbucks fallacy, that just because China has lots of Starbucks, it doesn't mean it's like us, and that there's this what uh, Stang calls the liberal myth uh, about what is happening in China and the direction of change in China, and that, in fact, from the beginning, it's been quite clearly stated that it was, wasn't the intention to democratize, and something which I've argued for a long time, that uh, Deng Xiaoping's reforms were a liberalization of the political system because of things that had to be done following the Cultural Revolution rather uh, than democratization. But anyway, you haven't come to listen to me, you've come to listen to Professor Ringen, so please join me in welcoming him uh, to speak with us this afternoon.
Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Tony. For I think we can go directly to the discussion now. Um, and thank you, of course, for the invitation. Um, I'm delighted to be back here. I spent um, a very productive work period here a few years ago, leading up to an entirely different book called Nation of Devils, translated to Chinese, but now on the suspended list there. Although they should have published it there, because it was entirely about how bad, badly functioning American democracy was, but I don't think the censors noted, noted that. They looked at the title and said, we don't need that. Anyway, it was, um, that was suspended. So the question that I've set myself a few years ago, and I'm sure this was Tony's doing when I was here, is what kind of state is the Chinese state? And the answer I've eventually come to there now is entirely bleak and despondent. The best we can hope for is a continuation of today's hard dictatorship which is nevertheless tempered by an element of pragmatism. That's not necessarily what we will get, but the alternatives are even worse. And I'll return to that as we go along. What I found is that the Chinese system, the Chinese state, is unique, <clears throat> different from anything else known to man now or in history. This is a system, a political economy, entirely of its own kind. The political system is unique. It is a party state. There are now very few party states left, and this one is big and it's highly effective. The dictatorship is unique, now so smooth in its operation that it, to some degree, doesn't even look dictatorial and is able to rely extensively on the population's self-control. This is a kind of control system that we have not known previously, and I have given it a name, a concept which is elegant and easy and slips effortlessly from the tongue. I call it a controlocracy. Controlocracy. That's not as bad as the concept is not as bad as you think. You practice it a little bit, and it'll go very well. China is a controlocracy. <clears throat> the economy is unique. It is exactly what the leaders say it is. It's a socialist market economy, not capitalist, not a crude command economy. It's different, and as we know, it is effective. Even its system of corruption is unique not a sideshow of bribery, but at the top of the corruption pyramid, integral to the political economy in the form of large-scale organized crime against the state from within the state. So this is like nothing the world has known. Terms like capitalist, socialist, autocratic have very little meaning. It needs to be understood entirely on its own terms. However, how unique and sophisticated this system is, it has at its core an awkward common crudeness. When all the glitter of economic growth, city skyscrapers, high-speed rail and all that is peeled away, China is a dictatorship, raw, repressive and brutal. 
It is a system in which people of independent mind cannot sleep at ease at night out of fear that someone will come knocking and take them away and bring retribution down upon family, friends, and connections. And it's a system in which those who stand in its way and those around them do get crushed. Now, I followed the operations of stability maintenance. This is the official term for it, stability maintenance, at the cutting edge. And there are some reoccurrences that will then cease after a while. And one is that those who bring stability maintenance to the street level are often people in civilian of unknown providence and authority. They may be officials in civilian dress, or they may be freelancers with unknown authority. And another thing which reoccurs and which is shocking is the degree to which people who are at the receiving end, ultimately, of stability and maintenance get beaten up at home, in the streets, in confinement, brutally beaten up, sometimes very hard, sometimes to damage, sometimes to death. And that is not the work of some rotten apples in the barrel. That is systemic. So this elegant and sophisticated system has at its core a dependence on mafia-style thuggish brutality. Now, I come from, to the study of the Chinese state from outside of China studies, as Tony mentioned. And that um, carries with it some disadvantages. I don't know Chinese history in the way that those who have studied it for a long time do. I don't have the intimate knowledge of Chinese society, as do colleagues who have lived there or been going for years on a regular basis. I've collaborated with Chinese colleagues. I've spent a good deal of time in China. All this has been to great benefit, but there are disadvantages. There are, however, also advantages to not coming from China studies. And one of those is that I'm not burdened by any China fascination. It's not that I'm all that interested in China. shouldn't say that in this company. But I'm very interested in how this machinery works. And another baggage which I don't have is that I have no intention of making myself a China hand. I don't know if I will go back to China again. If I apply for a visa, whether I get it or not, doesn't affect me one way or other. And I'm not dependent on any collaboration or largesse from any kind of Chinese authority. This I consider to be an advantage. And the perspective and experience that I have brought to this study is that of previous state studies, studies in how governments work. And I think that is every bit as good a background, as good as introduction, as coming from China studies. Now, I have been made to uh, feel a few times that I'm uh, invading as an immigrant other people's land. 
I've been spoken to in quite uh, stern terms in that uh, respect a few times. But I don't feel that is right. It is entirely appropriate to come to this study of China without the entry through China studies. There is a comparative angle to this work, and that comparison is mainly in the region. East Asia is a region of fantastic development stories. And China is, in that region, in, in developmental terms, not unique, but rather typical for um, the uh, development stories in the region, except, of course, with China's bigness and weight. And my particular comparison is with South Korea, which I, on which I have done previous work, and uh, which has served as a backdrop of very, very useful comparison. Actually, when I started, I was expecting that I would find in China sort of um, a Korean development, a developmental state only writ large, but what I found is completely different. And all this has led me to looking at the Chinese case through a lens of always skepticism. Always skepticism. I've tried to peel away the mythology and the bling, of which there is much, and to remain ever critical and try to get inside the beast, and as well as I can, to get my finger on its pulse. Now, the official Chinese story about itself is that the state has delivered economic growth and that it has been able to do that thanks to holding the power to maintain stability. China is a big and complex country. There needs to be power enough in Beijing to prevent disorder. Only then can the state deliver progress and serve the people. Now, that is a plausible story. Um, up to reform and, and opening up as of about 1978, China had behind it a couple of centuries at least of absolutely horrendous chaos, disorder, and suffering. This is a plausible story. And what I, I think I've tried to do in this book is to test that story. And I have tried, I think, to give that story the benefit of the doubt. Now, the test consists at the core of a description of the apparatus. There's also a lot about the economy as a backdrop. So I'm not at all ignoring the economy. But then I move on to the political administrative apparatus, the biggest bureaucratic system ever invented. There are about 75 million people who are in the employ of the state and the party. Now, I have my background from a country of 5 million people. And it's been a constant battle in this study to get my head around the numbers. I mean, this is so hard. And it matters so much get my head around, understand the numbers. So there are about 75 million people in the employ of the state and the party. So I've tried to see how this is made up and works, how the party is made up and work, the government, the military, the legislature, judiciary, police, and so on. I've looked at the administrative patterns of centralization and decentralization. 
I've looked at the economy and the interface of state and economy. There's a lot about taxation in this book. If you want to understand a state, look at how it taxes its people. I've explored as well as I can the Chinese tax system. I worked on that for a very long time, and I was constantly trying to engage friends in social settings in a discussion about the Chinese tax system. I can say to those of us of you who are younger than I, that if you want to strike up a good conversation with a person you are interested in establishing a relationship with in a social setting, the Chinese tax system is not a theme to do that with. <laughs> and I've looked at the reverse side, the services, the public services that come back to the people from the state. This is really where I started in conversation with Tony. Um, and some of the things I've found is that uh, over the last couple of decades, there has been a, 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 a movement which combines decentralization and centralization in the political administrative system. A strong decentralization of responsibility, so that now more than previously, what the state does, it does through the local state but at the same time, a strong centralization of power. So the center heaps mandates on the local authorities, which they have to execute or are supposed to execute. Uh, but the state is increasingly in control of the money. More of the tax revenues go into the control of the central state so that the local authorities, with all their mandates, are dependent on the central state for the money they need to uh, execute those mandates. So there is a combination of decentralization and centralization. On the economy, let me just insert here the, a, a, few, a few remarks. After Mao, when Mao left the stage, the economy was in dire straits. One result of which was that the state itself was essentially bankrupt. It could not fund its basic services. It couldn't even fund its military. And the military was encouraged to and had to go into business, with it, which it did with relish. And the purpose, or at least one purpose, of economic reform and opening up was to reconstitute the fiscal basis of the state. And that has been achieved uh, in a, to a great deal. Uh, today, the Chinese people live uh, under a very heavy tax burden, extremely heavy tax burden. This is a state that extracts very heavily from its people. About two-thirds of national income go through the hands of the state. Not all of that in the name of taxation, about half of it in the name of taxation. The rest comes to the state in various other ways through the constitution of the labor market, the banking system, and very importantly through land management. But this is a state that extracts fiscal resources from its population uh, to a degree which is much beyond what we find in Europe and the United States, for example. The services that come back to the population from the state are in 
comparison minimal. This is, in services, this is a minimalist state. Compared to what it extracts, it returns in services only what is needed. It's a system that altogether is very expensive to run, and the difference between what it extracts and what it returns to the population is needed to fund the big bureaucracies, the avalanche of often unproductive investments, the corruption, uh, the capital flight, and so on. So uh, there is um, uh, an imbalance, one can say, between extraction on the one side and services returned on the other side. I have also found in this work that I need to play, pay close attention to ideology and to take ideology very seriously. I do not think it's in any way correct to think that one of the legacies of Deng Xiaoping's reform was to free the system, liberate it from the burden of ideology. Ideology is still very important. And that includes Xi Jinping, the current leader's innovation, under what he calls the China dream. And I will return to that matter towards the end. Now, all this leads me to an assessment of state capacity. And that assessment is about like this. State finances, first of all, state finances are now rock solid. Now, there's lots of problems. Uh, runaway local spending, debt, um, um, and so on. But behind all those difficulties, state finances are rock solid. This is a state with ample fiscal resources. Administrative capacity I describe as adequate. And I say it in this way. It is effective, although never efficient. Bureaucracies are huge. They are wasteful, inefficient. But they get the job done. They're effective. Now, this administrative apparatus, which is effective in spite of not being efficient, is very expensive to run. It is a very expensive system. The control capacity I describe as awesome. The party is everywhere, including inside the new sector of private business and private enterprise, and inside the emerging sector of NGOs. And as strange as it may sound, and as strange as it is, in a population of 1.4 billion people, the party is everywhere, knows everything, sees everything, and hears everything. And they really do know. And if you'd like to follow up, we can look at some examples of the way in which they know uh, in the discussion. In this control, this is my controlocracy. Hmm? Are we okay with controlocracy? Controlocracy. There is a pattern. And it's a pattern which is complex and difficult to get right, to describe correctly. There's a lot going on. And some people get away with a lot, certainly in speech. Those of us who go to China to lecture there at universities know this. We have excellent discussions, free and open, fine discussions. A bit more difficult when things come down in writing, 
but some people get away with a lot. And in the, this, there is much that looks like arbitrariness, and no doubt is arbitrary. Not all the people who bring stability maintenance to the uh, raw end are um, effectively on the job, and there is no doubt a lot of arbitrariness. Often, little things that seem innocent get struck down upon, and at other times, things that look serious are let go. It's possible to look at Chinese civil society now and to see much of positive development. NGOs are sprouting, charities, there is voluntarism, all of this. Chinese life is better regulated by law. Citizens can now sue government agencies, at least some government agencies, and they do. The courts may be with them. So all this is correct. This is the element of pragmatism at work. However, the civil society that we from outside are in touch with is a tiny sector of British society. There are many at work. This is the numbers problem again. Many at work, but although they are many, they are, in the larger perspective, a small section. It is also this civil society, and it would not in any way be correct to say that China is a system with, in which there isn't a, a, a real civil society. But that civil society, those institutions of that activity, is nevertheless under observation and control. This is a sophisticated controlocracy that what does not need to be cracked down upon does not get cracked down upon, but what needs to does. We need to be very careful, I think, with judging the Chinese system by the experiences we ourselves have when we visit. What we are in touch with in Chinese reality is a tiny sector of the society. On this tour a couple of days ago, a colleague told a story. She had been recently at a Chinese university, had excellent collaboration, all was fine, all was normal. And one day, a Chinese colleague comes and says, actually, I'm not going to have to submit that self-criticism after all. And she said it was astonishing. There was something there that she was not aware of that isn't usually visible. What is not arbitrary and what does normally get reacted against is any effort toward organization or networking outside of the party system. The party system is very big. It's among the many things I've tried to estimate in this book. And I find that the party itself it now has about 88 million members. It's grown by about 5 million while I've been observing it. Uh, and then there are uh, the affiliates, um, the official trade unions, uh, the All-China Federation of Women, the All-China Federation of Trade and Industry, the Youth League, the students, all of these. And if you try to look at this whole network, I find that more than half of the adult population is co-opted into some kind of membership in the party system. 
an organization outside of that system is struck down upon. And let me give an example. About a year ago, which I think is illustrative, about a year ago, a group of young women were rounded up in different parts of the country, and they had been organizing and planning demonstrations against sexual harassment in public transport, and they were hauled in. Now, sexual harassment in public transport is not a regime-subversive issue. This People's Republic is not dedicated to protecting the right to sexual harassment. It is also the, the All-China Federation of Women are entirely on the job. But what these women had done is that they had formed networks, and they were collaborating across the country and planning simultaneous actions in different parts of the country. And that is not acceptable, and it got stopped. Okay, so altogether then in terms of capacity, fiscal capacity, administrative and control capacity, I do not agree with what is often said about the Chinese system from outside, that it is one driven by contradictions. I mean, this is the basis of the continuous prediction that this system is going to collapse, that it's driven by contradictions that cannot hold. Mainly, it's, it's thought to be between capitalism in the economy and Leninism in the political system. Contradictions. Those contradictions are in our mind, in the liberal myth. I do not see this system as one riven by internal contradictions. Lots of problems, but not systemic, logical, internal contradictions. Now, the road to firm control has moved in ups and downs. The People's Republic was established, as we know, in 1949, and then followed about 10 years of economic progress. Harsh dictatorship from the start, but at least economic progress. Then followed the 20 years of Maoist misery. No, misery is not the word about it. Mao was catastrophe when Mao became all-powerful. First in the Great Leap Forward from about 1958 to 1960. 40 million people succumbed through starvation and um, and murder in two or three years. And then when Mao has been able to get back onto his feet and gather absolute control in his hands again, the Cultural Revolution from about 1966 and 10 years on, another absolutely horrendous period of death and destruction. Then followed, from about 1978, reform and opening up. And here we need to remind ourselves Tony mentioned it in the beginning, that the intention of reform and opening up was economic reform and opening up, but not political reform and opening up, not political liberalization. Deng Xiaoping himself was entirely clear about that from the beginning. It was economic reform and political reconstitution. The political system, the economic system was in dire straits after Mao. The political system was even in worse condition. And Deng was a party man, and his mission was to re-establish the party system, bring that back to, onto its feet again. 
Then, um, ten years later, came the events that we often associate with the name of Tiananmen, but which I describe as the uprising of 1989. This was not a student revolt. It was a popular revolt. It was not limited to Beijing, but uh, spread throughout the country. And the crackdown occurred in we do not know how many cities, maybe 80, maybe 100, maybe 400, and we do not know anything about the cost in human lives of that crackdown. Now, the period, the 10 years of the 1980s were optimistic periods in China, both inside China and outside. Now, Deng had been quite clear that this was not political opening up, but it wasn't clear in practice. There wasn't agreement in the regime about it. There were different factions, and things were fluid. And there was a widespread feeling that China was moving not to democracy, but to a more relaxed form of control. And the meaning of the crackdown in 1989 was to put an end to the hope of liberalization. The people were told that you can have economic progress, but liberalization, freedom, is not available and you will not get it. This was a momentous national historical event in the lives of the Chinese. Then, as of 2012, the People's Republic was taken into the third stage uh, of its uh, evolution after the Maoists and the Deng stage when Xi Jinping came to power uh, four years ago. And what has followed in those four years is, on the one hand, a concentration of power in the country to Beijing, in the Beijing to the party, and in the party to the boss himself. And, on the other hand, a step-by-step, systematic, relentless tightening of control and repression. And this has represented a huge shift in the modes of the regime. And as we speak, we are in the middle of that shift. And much, or some things, are in the balance. We do not know where things are going. I don't think we can predict, at least I wouldn't want, at least I say I'm not predicting. No one knows. But I speculate in the end in some possible scenarios. Many developments are possible. Some are more likely than others. I said at the beginning that the best we can hope for is a continuation of hard dictatorship tempered by some element of pragmatism. That's pretty much where the People's Republic is now. And I think this is a high probability scenario. The regime has served itself very well by some element of muddling through. And um, it would be a wise choice from the regime's point of view to try to continue with some element of pragmatism and to refrain from 
a vision of perfection. And that, I believe, is a high probability scenario. Now, the alternatives which I think are worthy of consideration, or most worthy of consideration, is first that the controlocracy breaks, that control collapses. It may very well happen. It re- it's, you know, my interpretation is that the state is in firm control, but it is a control that rests on many a fine balance. The economy is slowing. Economic growth could also stop. Uh, there could be uh, revolt internally in the apparatus. You know, Xi Jinping is dictatorial ilter- internally too. It could drive his anti-corruption campaign to destruction. It could paralyze the administrative system. Um, democracy contagion from Hong Kong and Taiwan may not be containable. Much can happen. And in my view, if control breaks, the alternative will not be a mild movement towards a liberal alternative. The alternative, the, the, the alternative will be chaos. Chaos. I wouldn't put any of my money, although I'm not predicting, I wouldn't put any of my money on any form of liberal reforms from inside the regime. If the control breaks, the result, I think, would be chaos. And on this, I think I speak with a little bit of authority because... In our study of the South Korean system, one of the big questions was how did it come about in South Korea that that system metamorphosed peacefully from authoritarianism to democracy, easily and peacefully. And we know some of the conditions why that happened, and those conditions are not present in the Chinese case. So how un- however unpalatable the hard dictatorship now is, This alternative of the control breaking is even worse. I consider that to be a low probability scenario. I don't, it's not something that is very likely. As I say, my reading is that the state is in control. But it can happen. But I wouldn't put it as a high probability development. The other alternative development is a further movement out towards an all-out totalitarian state. The Chinese state is on a continuum from pragmatic dictatorship to all-out totalitarianism. And under Xi Jinping's leadership, it has been moving relentlessly in the direction of the totalitarian end of that continuum. It's not out there, but that's the direction it has been moving. And it's entirely possible that that drift will continue and that the regime will establish a new equilibrium very near to the totalitarian end of that continuum. And that I consider to be a second high probability scenario. Now what then separates my two high probability scenarios is ideology. And I try to be precise in what I mean by ideology. I don't just mean some slogans about Mao Zedong thought and Deng Xiaoping theory and all of that. But I mean by ideology uh, a set of ideas and beliefs that become 
that gel into a belief system that takes hold with commanding power. Now, in Xi Jinping's big transformation of the regime, I see also the embryo of a return to ideology. Not now Marxist-Leninism, that's all finished, but a new narrative based on nationalism, chauvinism, and aggression under his slogan of the China Dream. Now, the China Dream could be just another slogan. The Chinese leaders use slogans. They're expert. They use slogans all over the place. They mobilize slogans all the time. And it could be that the China Dream is just another opportune slogan. But it could also take hold as, in my meaning, ideology. Let me just say here that when, when we discuss ideas and ideology, I am a follower of the great philosopher Isaiah Berlin, who in a lifetime of work reminded us of the, the power of ideas and the dangerous power of ideas that gel into ideology. And I think that when powerful leaders speak in ideological language, then we should not brush it aside as just showmanship. It, we should listen and take it very seriously. Now, if the China dream is ideology and not just loose talk, then it is ideology of the most sinister kind. If it is, then it is of the most sinister kind. And when Xi Jinping launched the China dream, this was in, right after he came to power, 2012, in the National Museum in Beijing, in front of the uh, National Rejuvenation Exhibition. Those who have, those, many of you will have seen it. Those who haven't, it's an absolutely wonderful showcase of kitschy, effective uh, uh, propaganda. Um, and it's not to be missed, if one is in Beijing, not to be missed. In front of that Rejuvenation Exhibition, Xi Jinping launched this notion of the China dream as the greatest dream of the Chinese nation in recent times and the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And then he added that each person's future and destiny is closely linked with the future and destiny of the country and the nation. Now, the sting in this in the is in the tail. The ideological sting is in the tail of this exhortation. In this idea of unity, of nation and person. Of nation first and person thereafter. And the unity of nation and person. This is a narrative that gives individuals very little autonomous standing, a narrative which, in which ultimately there are no separate individual interests that stand in the way and restrain the actions of the authorities that are the custodians of the national interests.
As I say, this is an ideology, if it is ideology, of the most sinister kind. And the heading I give to the final scenario in this postscript is the perfect fascist state. Thank you for your attention. Okay, that's a pretty powerful set of arguments, and we have a microphone that we'll pass around for questions. While everybody's sort of getting ready, there's two or three things that uh, occurred to me. Starting with the last point, one of the things I, I agree with you on, in, I have a slightly different take on it than the fusion of individual in the party, and I think it's the, the fusion of the idea that the party is the nation. And I think that is in part what you're, you're meaning with that. And where that becomes dangerous is that it means it's very difficult to open up a realm for constructive criticism. Because essentially uh, any criticism of that realm then becomes by its nature unpatriotic and can be used uh, to silence uh, criticism in that way. Two or three other things I just want to mention quickly. One thing that I, struck me very strongly is your argument that many of us have pointed out is that there's a natural contradiction in this reform strategy. It's actually really not true, that it's a much more integrated uh, system, I think, than many people argue. One thing, because I've read the book, where... It's a very, I thought, was a very strong set of argument, but you only just touched on it very briefly. But I think that's one of the strongest parts of your argument, is where you go through quite carefully and show just how extractive the state is. But I thought what was even more interesting, and this comes from your work as uh, in uh, comparative development of the welfare state, and I remember you, you saying this some years ago before, before the book came out, I had never realized until you told me that, uh, because I had always been under the, the impression that for a developing country, China had actually put in quite a strong kind of social welfare base, you know, trying to spread it to the countryside, so on and so forth. And it was only when you told me, and you repeated again in the book, that actually when the British system, the UK, put in the... Uh, that a whole national health service, which is much more ambitious, much more extensive than what China has tried to do, it was actually poorer than China. That to me was really quite an eye-opener. And it was really made me think about what China provided to its people to date in quite a different way. Now, I don't know empirically whether that's true or not, but I take it on trust that what you say true. But that is such a striking argument. Uh, because I think a lot of us have sort of bought into the fact that China's really been doing a lot in terms of trying to provide welfare and spread welfare into the countryside in a way that was unusual for what seems to be developing countries. The last point, though, is to take issue a little bit with some of the things. And it's... When one talks about the party and the state, and as you say, there's 88 million people and how many more, the, the notion that that is a unified entity always troubles me. 
I understand what you're talking about, the framework, the constraints it sets around it. But if there's only one show in town, you've got to join it. And it's not just for, you know, motives of making money or getting on. If you have a belief or an ideology, it's really the only place to engage in that. And I remember earlier, you know, Ken Jowett, when he wrote about what he called the Leninist, uh, uh, what was it, Leninist inclusion, that if you only have one party, what you finish up doing is you import into that party all the contradictions within society. And that means it's much more fragile than we sometimes think. And we all know, I mean, you meet Communist Party members who are more Stalinist than Stalin, who are more free marketeers than uh, freedmen, who are more liberal uh, than many people one would run into. So I do wonder and worry a little bit with this sort of notion that somehow 88 million people are all in line with this, when in fact there's so many different strands of thought within the party itself. And that leads me to the last point, which actually I think has been shown historically. The system which then becomes based on... Um, patron-client relations, is always very fragile. And what we've seen historically is actually the party is much more liable to rapid breakdown than we sometimes think. Now, I might agree with you that the outcome of the party breaking, breaking down could be a more horrendous uh, outcome than perhaps what we've got at the moment. But I think it has perhaps a much higher likelihood because of the tensions within the party than perhaps you suggested. But uh, before answering that, let's uh, open up. And if people just tell us who you are and then uh, briefly maybe start with Arna and then we've got Bill at the front here, then a gentleman at the back and the gentleman here. So one, two, three, four, Joan, five. Hi, I'm Arne Westad. I teach here at, at the Kennedy School. Thanks for your, uh, your talks then and a fascinating book as well. Goodness me, I thought I was down on the Chinese regime, but... Uh, you certainly give me a run for my money in terms of this. Um, and there are parts of your book. I mean, some, I would encourage people to read the book. There's some really insightful observations, particularly in a comparative sense, that, that come out of it. Um, I agree on the, what you have to say about the tendency towards a harsher dictatorship than what has been there in the past. Um, but let me stress... Um, where the disagreements are. And I think there are two main disagreements, and then I'm going to ask a couple of questions. W one disagreement is uh, the one that uh, Tony brought up as well with regard to the stability of the regime. I see it as much more fragile than, than what you see it as being. I see much deeper contradictions, both economic, social, and political within the party itself, um, which could easily destroy the system in, in, the form, in the form that it has now. But there's also another uncertainty that I have. And this is, uh, this is something that puzzles me in, in, in contemporary China. Um, is that in spite of this being a dictatorship that aspires to be an ever stronger dictatorship, there is still a remarkable room for discussion in terms of what goes on uh, within institutions, um, among people. You're entirely right in what you're saying that what the government is trying to crack down on is this being seen as having any kind of independent institutional base. But beyond that, across China, and I spent a lot of time there this spring and, and summer, um, there is a remarkable room for discussion of, of various sorts and uh, reflection on the condition that people live under. And goodness me, I've, I've never seen more dissatisfied people 
than I met in China uh, when I was there last. Unhappy people who do not like the direction that their country is taking. Now, you might be right in saying that these people are incapable of dealing with the situation as it is now and doing anything about it, but it doesn't sort of indicate stability to me and, and the party perfecting uh, the art of dictatorship along the lines that, that, that you are holding up. So I'm more skeptical with regard to that. Now, two questions, very briefly. First one about the historical trajectory of this. So if you see China today, the Chinese Communist Party, as perfecting a new and different kind of dictatorship, where does this historically come from? What is it that makes China so different with regard to this than some of the other cases that you have been looking at um, earlier on? And on the issue of social welfare, where I'm entirely with you, by the way, I think that's a, that's a very important observation that you have. Um, do you see any room for protest with regard to that? Because clearly people are very unhappy about the lack of social provisions that are there with a tax burden, burden very rapidly increasing, as you said. Can you see that as a point in terms of where the satisfaction would be coming out rather than the pure political? Could I make just a few comments yeah, on this? Uh, because, um, you know, both you, Tony, and Arne, you, you spoke about, you know, what is the stability, what is the, the degree of control? Uh, what I said is that uh, there is control which rests on many a fine balance, and these balances can crack. And we've mentioned what they are. Hmm? Um, uh, you know, uh, it can be the, the, the conflicts and discussions within the system that sort of bubbles up to the top. Um, it can come from dissatisfaction in civil society. So I agree with this. I, I, you know, I have no, agree no disagreement with these descriptions. So the question then is about the likelihood. And I, from what I have seen over these years, I hold uh, the, the, the likelihood that these forces result in an uncontrollable situation for the uh, party states to be small, small likelihood. Now, we can, we, can, we can discuss that likelihood. We can have different guesses about it. I'm not at all, you, we, we are in, in total agreement on the description of these things. But we have maybe different, we, we, we have different guesses about what the likelihood of different outcomes are. And you might be, might be wrong, right, you know. Uh, and, and, and I'm very careful in these scenarios I list at the end to say that this can happen. This can happen. My guess is that it is not very likely in the foreseeable future. Now, that's the historical trajectory. Now, what is the foreseeable future here? I would say it is the normal period of Xi Jinping. You know, he, normally he will be uh, in charge for 10 years. Yeah, six more years ago. This is a system that's very dependent on the leadership. Although there's a lot of debate and things, and very dependent on the, on the leadership. But Xi Jinping, if he leaves in the normal way after 10 years, who comes in instead? Now, that is a big issue. And that may change things again. When Xi Jinping came in, it really changed the regime. It can change it again. So the foreseeable future is uh, Xi Jinping. Just one more comment on, 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 on. You see, I don't classify China as a developing country. In my view, a developing country is a country where the state does not have 
administrative and fiscal resources to do its business. Not the situation in China. You know, you, I think you've been saying recently that if you were a dictator somewhere, I'd go to China to study how they do it. I think that's right. But there's one thing you need to add to that, and that is that these other dictators who would like to see how the China, Chinese do it, they have to have the resources. I mean, the Chinese state has two million people at work in controlling the internet. Now, that's more people than the service personnel in the People's Liberation Army. Now, that is administrative capacity of a awesome kind. Not very efficient, but it's effective. And against all expectations of all of us from the outside, the internet in China has not become a force for opening up from below, but has become another instrument of control from above, totally against what we with the liberal myth mindset would think would have guessed. Okay, leave that. Well, thank you for a very provocative and interesting talk. Um, I have one comment and one question. The comment is you described this successfully centralized powerful uh, system under Xi Jinping. Um, almost everybody around the leadership uh, that I hear uh, sees Xi Jinping as in a desperate effort to consolidate sufficient power uh, in the face of what had been overwhelming tides of decentralization to the interest groups, to the provinces, and so on, to, to acquire enough power to, to force through vitally needed economic reforms. Uh, and uh, that seems to me like a, uh, an accurate description of what's going on. It's not at all clear that it'll succeed. The question has to be to do with the the economic side, and I haven't read your book, and I, I now will enthusiastically. <laughs> but on the, you characterize this rock solid uh, uh, financial regime. On the surface, I look at the revenues they get. Um, India is one of the weakest countries in the world at collecting revenues. Uh, China, China's revenues are about half the percentage of GDP that, that India gets. Uh, there are very few countries in the entire world that are as poor at extracting tax revenues as China. And um, on the other side, uh, as I come out of financial risk analysis for banks, you add up the the uh, local government debt in particular and the, the state enterprise debts and the, uh, the bank's problems, uh, which are going to have to be bailed out by the state because the real estate and overcapacity issues and the limited central government debt. 
those numbers look pretty formidable. Uh, so if you could if you could fill out that side a little bit, uh, uh, it sounds like you did in your book, uh, but it would. It, for those of us who haven't read it yet, that would be very interesting. Okay, so um, are you going to ask the question first, or do I ask? Do you want me to ask the question right, right no, now? Okay. Um, so my question is um, somewhat similar to you and this, this gentleman have asked about the how the control um, really works. But let me rephrase it in a different light. Uh, in the talk, you have a talk about the formative structure of how state operates um, and control the individuals. Uh, yeah. But uh, from the study of history, we know that you know history is never a you know one direction move from the state. It's also a you know history from below and from like the total history point to understand how uh, different government society move from uh, you know from this place to the to, to the next stage. And uh, my question is, uh, there are many like so you have not really talked about how. Um, the individuals on the individual level, how different individu individuals react to or respond to uh, the state's control as well as the centralization of power and decentralization of the responsibility. Uh, you know, some may be happy, some might, uh, you know, there's dissidents, and there's some really were really indifferent. And how this, you know, dynamic may evolve or tamed or change uh, the, the political regime that, you know, China currently have and, uh, you know, how this may evolve to something different. Okay. You don't, you don't want to answer that. You don't want to answer that first. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So I haven't read the book either, but I, I'm very stimulated by your talk. Um, I guess the question I have is the way we think about dictatorship. Um, and of course, given our sort of Greek history, we tend to think uh, that democracy is a better system. But actually, the Greeks talked about dictatorship as an alternative under certain circumstances. Oh, some Greeks. And we're pretty clear that um, you know, in a time of war, uh, the state can assert a great deal of authority. Uh, in the Chinese case, uh, sometimes what we call dictatorship is zhuanzhi, which means centralized administrative authority. And it's essentially embodied in the Qin experience, right? Uh, it, see, it strikes me, I mean, the Chinese are very, in, in my understanding, I, I do Chinese history, um, are very interested in how the past can inform the present. And so uh, if you want to look at the history of China, there are many models for governance. The Qin is probably the most authoritarian. It's also one of the shortest. Uh, so from the Chinese perspective, dictatorship has its strengths under certain circumstances, but it also has its weaknesses. So my question, I guess, is whether you think this history does have some relevance to China's current situation. Because the Qin attained the authority it did because it unified China. Tianxia, in fact, not just China, but the known world. And in China, of course, the Chinese have talked a lot about 
global governance. They've talked a lot about a world revolution under Mao and so on. Today, that's not their goal. They're talking about the nation state. We're afraid of that, but the nation state is the, really the way we think about international politics. It's, it's not the Chinese way. The Chinese way is to think of nations as evanescent and turning into a, a larger global order. So we're depriving the Chinese of pursuing that global order by saying you just need to stay within your borders. That's, that's resulted, I think, in the notion that somehow we have to have a kind of dictatorial system in order to go beyond this nation state. I just, that would be my thought. Hi, I'm Joan Kaufman. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I have two questions, really, points. Uh, one is, if you put yourself in the shoes of a Chinese person living in China today um, and look back at the last, you know, uh, 50, 60 years, especially the last 35 or 40, it's looking pretty good uh, compared to where their parents were in terms of their own, you know, disposable income, access to education, health care, uh, those kinds of things. And life, I, I think the, you know, at the large level of the intellectual class and uh, many people, they have some misgivings about what's happening politically right now. But for the most part, I think they're quite supportive of, uh, you know, China's place in the world and how far the country has come and the direction in which it's going. Um, so I wanted to just ask you, you know, with a lens of sort of being a Chinese citizen, uh, how does it look from your point of view? And, and then having lived in China myself for, you know, 15 of the last 35 years and just recently just came back, you know, about six months ago, um, I, um, you know, I think if you look at the rights situation, for example, and people's individual rights and their ability to operate on a daily basis, um, you know, the sort of geopolitical realities, the dictatorship kind of authoritarianism and controlism, um, it doesn't touch that much on people's, most people's day-to-day -day life. There's always a fear factor, I think, in people understanding where the line is politically. But in terms of freedoms, I think there's been, you know, it's sort of going in the well, right direction, except for the last four or five years, going back a little bit, but not as far as it's you know, still moving forward, I would say. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you would comment on that. And then just the other point is about the, I, I'm struck by, as Tony was, on the social com uh, welfare uh, comparisons, say, with, you know, like the UK and the National Health Service. But I wonder if you put it into scale, you know, uh, China having not gone through the Industrial Revolution uh, at that particular point, and you know maybe poorer, but looking at you know 1.3 billion people, many of them rural, um, and looking at the enormous progress China's made, certainly in the health area, which is the area I work in, um, you know, with a prof health profile that you know most countries in Africa would have been envious of in 1980 uh, and still getting better aging population and things like that um, and the universal education the nine-year compulsory education for so many people right not five million but 1.3 <laughs> billion that's the scale issue you know I think that they do look pretty good and they have delivered quite a bit and uh, 
you know, in a way even before before getting rich. So I wonder if you could, you know, comment on this scale issue in terms of the social welfare stuff, because I my impression is and my my thoughts about that are really very different. So. Um. Well, to build, I think uh, we should talk about the tax question after you've looked at this, because, as I say, this, in, in the way I worked it out, uh, this is a system that is ferociously extractive in, in taxation. So, but, but let's talk about that. I was, afraid, I was afraid that someone would raise the question of the banks. <laughs> now, Chinese banking is not something that's comprehensible to the normal human mind. I mean, no one understands Chinese banking. Uh, the, 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 the debt, the shadow banking, uh, who is in debt to whom and what this is. And, I mean, it's a great, great mystery. Uh, it's a big, big issue with local government debt in particular. You know, I said at the beginning that local governments have all these mandates. They are dependent on the central state for the funds to execute those mandates. But those funds are not enough. Local governments do not have enough revenue to execute their mandates. So they have had to raise money themselves in other ways. Much of that they have done through land management, which is a very important source. Another through borrowing, you know, runaway borrowing. Now, who do they borrow from? Well, you know, they borrow from shadow banks run by or in association with the state banks that are under regulatory protection, monopoly protection, against shadow banking. I mean, the state banks operate illegal shadow banking sectors uh, in a legal situation where there is some regulation that protects the the state banks from competition from shadow banking. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it is incomprehensible, this system. And I have I, I have no idea to what degree this debt that is slushing around is real, to what degree it is sort of bookkeeping between different units that are in some way part of the same system. I don't know. I don't. It's a big issue, a big problem. It's part of, part of this fine balance. This can go wrong. It can go drastically wrong. But, but I, I wouldn't be able to say that, that these, this, the, writ large, the banking system in China is not something I understand. No, no. Now, the, the question of whether Xi Jinping is gathering enough power to engage in economic reform, this is a... This is a view. I don't think it's a pervasive view. I mean, they, under Xi, the first big plenum was on economic reform. They drew up a very, very ambitious agenda of economic reform. Very little of that has been implemented later. Not really for want of power, but for want, maybe, of energy or interest on the part of Xi Jinping for actually undertaking economic reform. For me, the sort of narrative that he's just in the first process of gathering enough power to be able to do the economic reforms later, it's possible, but it's not, it's not a narrative that I think is persuasive. 
Um, now, there's been various questions about how people react and protest and so on, uh, and how happy people are with the state of affairs. And on this, we know, I think, relatively little. Uh, there is a constant um, avalanche of protest uh, and demonstrations and strikes and such things throughout the territory. I mean, the sort of the, the ballpark number that many of us operate with is that there are about 500 mass incidents a day throughout the Chinese territory. So it's a lot of discontent. Most of that discontent is local. It is about local government thugs, it's about land grabs, it's about uh, unscrupulous employers and so on. And most of this is from the controlocracy's point of view, manageable as long as it is localized. It's when it takes on a bigger life that it becomes difficult. Right now it's the village of Wuhan, where um, uh, <laughs> you know, protests have attracted global attention again, and uh, it gets crushed. Um, I would be very reluctant to make, uh, partly because I haven't studied it, to make um, any assumptions about how satisfied or dissatisfied the Chinese people are. I mean, I think there's one powerful observation, and that is that every time in the People's Republic, when sort of control has been relaxed, uh, things have developed very quickly to a demand for democracy. The Hundred Flowers Movement, the Democracy Wall Movement, 1989. Um, so for me, it's not mysterious that Chinese people, as everyone else, want, want to live uh, a free life. Um, so I, I don't know how content or discontent people are. I know, from we have some statistics on this, that uh, sort of happiness, which we now can measure quite well, uh, there's been no improvement in the level of happiness in the Chinese population during the period of rapid economic growth. Um, the happiness of the Chinese people, as far as we can measure it, is stable. It's not better, not worse. A little bit better for the, among the rich, a little bit worse among the, those who are not rich, but altogether, uh, there's been no, you know, there's been a huge leap forward in GDP, GDP per capita. There's been no parallel movement forward in the happiness of the population. Now, I don't know about contentment with the service and so on. Um, uh, um, Tony knows much more about this than I do. Uh, but I think it's, it's very hard to judge. And I wouldn't uh, pretend to be able to do it. Anything about uh, contentment and discontentment in um, uh, the system. Of course, there's been huge step forwards in many ways. It's been tremendous economic growth. Not as much as uh, has been boasted and has been believed, but never mind. Tremendous economic growth. Um, and public services are much better than they were. Um, so I don't agree, disagree at all with that. But the, the degree to which this follows through to contentment in the population, I'm not so sure. I say here that 
I think the one thing that I think it is clear that one, the state has delivered now, the, moder- the, the reform state has delivered, and that is inform- important, is stability. I mean, the Chinese people know what the absence of it is. And that, that has been delivered by the reform state. Uh, I'm not sure we can say that the reform state has delivered economic growth. It's a difficult argument, and I discuss it in the book. Difficult argument. Nor that the state has lifted five, six hundred million people out of poverty. I, I'm, I'm not sure we can make those statements. But stability, and that is important. And I say, I suspect, but I don't know, I suspect that what the regime has of genuine legitimacy in the population is owed to its delivery of stability. Now, that's at a, at a price, as we know, but still, it is stability. And uh, there's nowhere where people would know better than in China what the alternative to stability means. Um, protest, I, I think I, did I, did I get back to you on, on protests? Again, I, I, you know, I, it's not within my remit. I do not know um, uh, uh, these matters of satisfaction and dissatisfaction on the individual level. Okay, we have a few more minutes. So, yes, please. Uh, I'm Zhang Xin. I'm the senior fellow here at Ash Center. I wanted to uh, just get your uh, a view on this. Uh, you're talking about China uh, is a country, a nation that's being controlled quite well. It is for now. Suppose that economic development will continue to deteriorate. Suppose that uh, the, the general discontent will rise. Um, and what do you think it'll take the, the current government of Xi Jinping, what does it take him? What, would it, what does he need to do to exercise the control that he needs? I mean, we watch Russia. Uh, it seems like the deteriorating uh, economic performance has not uh, manifested in its lack of control. Uh, Putin seems to continue to control quite well, despite of uh, Rupal had uh, gone down in half of the value. Uh, his popularity is still strong. Uh, many people believe that if uh, economically uh, China continues to, to, to slow down, it will give uh, a vast country like China a real headache to control. And I wonder if that would be the case and, and in your observation. And this one, one last question. 
Yeah, the last, not the least. Hi, uh, my name is Alejandro. I'm a student at the Kennedy School, and I have two questions. You, you mentioned one of the scenarios that actually China, the alternative of the control now, it will be chaos. And I'm just wondering how, for example, the U.S. or Russia would see that or react. So putting that domestic scenario within the geopolitical chessboard. And then the, the second question is actually how the current Chinese leadership see uh, Brexit. Uh, I remember the, in the book, The Party of Richard McGregor, actually, he said before the economic crisis in 2008, when the Chinese were trying to do investment in Europe, uh, they were allowing them to invest, but they couldn't, they couldn't have any voting rights in the company. But that things changed after 2008. And if Brexit is out of the EU, uh, would they see the Chinese leadership actually has an advantage uh, to make huge investment through their sovereign wealth fund in the financial system in London? Well, Brexit, I'd rather not say anything about. We can have a, a nice discussion about Brexit in another context. I'm rather engaged in the Brexit issue, so it's best that I don't say anything about that. Now, on the, and I don't want to say very much about the sort of outside world and China either, because that's really not part of this. But I, I mean, just so, just to, to, to put it out so that, <laughs> so that it is, I'm, I am not in any way an advocate of non-engagement with China. I am very strongly of the view that we outside of China should engage with China on all levels, economically, politically, and otherwise, culturally, in science, and so on. So I think it's just, if that's all right, I just want to, want to prevent anything, anyone from going around, going away from this and suspecting that I'm, since I'm as critical as I am of the regime, I'm not at all advocating any form of this engagement. Now, the question of economic growth, this is, this is very good, actually, because I mean, th this is, in my view, it's an, a system that is in control, but it's very expensive. It needs a lot of economic growth. So the reason we, people, are, you really get upset when official growth statistics in China go down from sort of eight to seven or six or so. It's not economic, but it's political. And if growth stops, maybe it has stopped for all we know, uh, this is a real danger in a system that is dependent on huge resources to run itself. So it's very, uh, very hard to see how the controlocracy could hold if it does not have the um, uh, flow of a relatively uh, uh, healthy economic uh, growth. Now, I do see these transformations that Xi has brought into the regime as an anticipation of slower economic growth. Because while the economy was growing very strongly, the regime could take a lot of legitimacy from economic growth. Now, if um, the economy slows down, 
and or expectations have run away from delivery, then the ability of the regime to trust in economic growth as a source of legitimacy diminishes. And in my view, Xi Jinping's shifts to more control, centralization of power, more repression and control, is in anticipation and shift to ideology, is in anticipation of a lessening ability to take legitimacy from economic growth. And they then need something else. Legitimacy, they need a narrative, a different narrative than just economic growth. And that, in my view, is the China dream. This is a different, and it's, it's a, from the regime's point of view, it's a good narrative because it is a narrative that, as far as I can see, has real resonance in the Chinese imagination. Now, the, the regime has been on the search for narrative. The previous leaders had the, the idea of the harmonious society. It was a serious attempt to create a, an ideology in support of the regime. That attempt, in my view, just failed because it was out of kilter with Chinese uh, uh, thinking, Chinese uh, imagination, and totally out of kilter with Chinese reality. You know, you can't have an ideology that says this is a harmonious society when it is moving to becoming the most unequal country economically on the surface of the earth. It doesn't, it doesn't work to say this is a harmonious society. So that attempt failed. Xi Jinping's China dream, I believe, is a second attempt at ideological articulation. And it needs ideological articulation because it cannot, the regime, because it cannot put its trust as much as in the big growth years on economic betterment as a source of legitimacy. So I think there's a shift in the regime in anticipation of lower economic growth. And probably it can manage lower economic growth. Can it manage no growth at all? Well, I think that, is, that, that would be a very, very difficult situation for a regime that is extremely expensive to manage. But Russia managed negative growth. Well, I don't know about Russia. I don't know.